announcements. There's other things that uh, are listed there in the e-bulletin for you to take a look at. But this morning, Daniel chapter 6, if you'll turn there. This is a good time to remember to turn our ringers off our phones. We got a few minutes in the Word of God. We want to be free from distractions. What a blessing it is for us to be in this chapter. It's a very familiar chapter. But the Lord wants to touch our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do come. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, taking your word and touching our hearts. As we see that Daniel's a man that had an excellent spirit in him, that that same spirit is in us to shine forth. And I pray that we would be teachable right now, uplifted and encouraged in every way. Lord, as we have the privilege of opening up our Bibles, I'd love to hear the, the turning of the pages of the Bible from people that are here. And Lord, we're not critical, we're not judgmental, but we know that in many churches, people don't even bring their Bibles. Is the very written word of God put to the page for our benefit and blessing. Amos speaks about famine in the land. And it's a famine not of bread, but of the word of God. And we've seen that today. The priority of the word is being diminished and put aside. And Lord, I pray that we would be ones that right now, that we take your word and work it deep within our hearts. So we give you this time as we look at this account of Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. And Lord, may you just draw us to you and we can leave this place built up and encouraged and rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. 539 B.C. We studied in chapter 5, the city of Babylon falls to Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians. We read it in chapter 5, the events that were taking place in, inside the city that night. Belshazzar's having a feast with the thousands of his lords. He calls for the holy vessels that were brought by his grandfather nearly 70 years previous to that. And Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem, he brought him to Babylon. He calls for those vessels to be brought out, and they began to toast to the gods of Babylon, to gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. And all of a sudden, behind Belshazzar, that there is this hand that begins to write on the wall. His face is full of terror. He, he is one that uh, his countenance changed. He turned pale. His knees were knocking together. He was so terrified. And as he called for the wise men of Babylon, they came out and they said, we can and not interpret the handwriting on the wall. And it would be Daniel that ended up coming out, as we saw last time, and he would interpret the handwriting on the wall, that many, many tekel euphorsen. The events going on on outside of the wall of, of Babylon, those tall walls of Babylon that they thought they were so secure, we know that Cyrus was diverting the flow, the Euphrates River. The walls there could not keep the soldiers from coming in as the riverbed, the Euphrates River that ran under the wall would dry up, prophesied 200 years previously by the prophet Isaiah. As we looked at that in chapter 44, the last two verses, and then the first two verses of chapter 45, the Cyrus, his name by name, called a servant of God, 
the rivers be dried up. They would come in, and in the inner wall, the gates were opened up, and they took the city without a battle really uh, taking place. And in, as we saw, chapter 5, that the message to Belshazzar was this, that God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You've been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom on this night is going to be given over to the Medes and the Persians. And now as we move into Daniel chapter 6, it is the account, as many of us know, of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. But I want to remind you as we go through this, it is such, such, uh, so much more than that. And as I have mentioned, what makes Daniel so powerful and impactful to study is that we see the person of Daniel, the captive of Judah, who stood firm for the Lord, who served in Babylon the entire 70 years of captivity and then into the reign of the Medes and the Persians. In chapter 7 through 12 that we will get into, we will see the amazing prophecies of Daniel which deal with what lies ahead in the affairs of the world that will lead us to the establishment of God's kingdom. But here in chapter 6, as I said, that Daniel being given to the lions and thrown into the den of lions, we know that this chapter, it, 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 we can break it up. We can uh, see that in verses 1 through 3, that Daniel is favored. Daniel is favored by God and by men. And then in verse, verses 4 through 9, we're going to see that Daniel is framed. They can't find any fault in Daniel. And then in verses 10 through 15, we see the faithfulness of Daniel. And then we will see that he is fed to the lions. And of course, as most of us know, the lions don't eat him or harm him. But then at the end of the chapter, we will see the freedom of Daniel. So there's a lot to consider as we read through these 28 verses. And that's how we're going to break it down. We begin as I'm going to read the last two verses of chapter 5 and then verse 1 of chapter 6. But in verse 30 of chapter 5, to remind you that this very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius, or Darius, however you want to say it, the Medes uh, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And now verse 1 of chapter 6 that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. As we begin to look at this chapter, Cyrus would take the Babylon, and he would be the ruler, the first king, and he would rule for about nine years. Now again, as we go into chapter 6 here, there is this challenge by some who consider themselves to be scholars. They will challenge the inspiration of the book of Daniel, and they will challenge the, the historical accuracy of the book of Daniel. And this chapter is one of those places where they begin to make those challenges. There is a new movement that, that is in our culture today that is affecting a lot of our young people. It's called deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard of it, but what it is is that there are those who will come along, and because social media is so, so popular with our young people that some who call themselves scholars will come, and they'll begin to have young people question their faith. 
They'll begin to challenge the creation account in Genesis. They begin to challenge the miracles of the Bible. They begin to challenge the, the words of Jesus. And they will challenge the, the book of Daniel in the prophecies that are given and also in the you know, historical account of Daniel as well. And there are many young people that are listening to these YouTubes, that are listening to these podcasts, and it's it's to get them, they said, to you got to rethink. you got to rethink things. Be open to what really is true. Don't believe in the creation account. You need to believe in what science is being taught to you in the universities. And there are many kids, young people, that are beginning to leave the faith as they are listening to these things. And listen, I want to equip you and I so that we can give them answers. And I always tell whoever it is, young or old, if you have questions, we want to be able to answer those questions. And concerning the historical accuracy of Daniel chapter 6, we can trust it. And we know that we can give answers to that. So here is Daniel chapter 6. We know that as they question it, they say, well, we know that Darius was the king. Why is it saying, uh, or Cyrus was the first king. Why is it saying now Darius? Well, there's a couple reasons why. Perhaps it could be, some have suggested, that Darius was a title and it was not a name. Uh, Like in the New Testament, uh, Herod. Herod was a title. And if I was to ask you, because you guys are Bible students, how many Herods are there in the New Testament? You would answer, there are four, right? Every one of you knew that. So Herod the Great, that during the time of the birth of Jesus, making that decree, that all the world should register for new taxes, Luke chapter 2. Then there is Herod the Tetrarch that Jesus actually stood before in one of the trials before he was condemned to death. He went to Pilate, then he went to Herod who mocked him, and then he went back to Pilate. Then in the, in the book of Acts, there's two Herods. Herod, Herod Agrippa I, he was eaten of worms there in Caesarea, and then uh, Agrippa II. So there's four Herods, it's a title. Caesar was a title as well. As well. Caesar Augustus uh, that made that decree, actually. It was Herod the Great that had the children killed in Bethlehem. But he made that decree that all the world should be registered. Caesar Tiberius would rule during the ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, Paul the Apostle, in the book of Acts, when he appealed to Caesar, he would be then taken to Rome. That's where the book of Acts ends. And he's under house arrest for two years. He writes the prison epistles. Then he would stand before Caesar Nero. Nero persecuted the Christians after that very heavily. He would have Paul put to death. He would have Peter put to death. And then at the end of the first century, uh, Domitian, Caesar Domitian, He hated the Christians. He killed many, many Christians. He's the one that had John at the end of the first century, the last living apostle, exiled to the island of Patmos, where he received the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So could it be that that, uh, uh, Darius or Darius was a title? Um, It may be that Darius was simply another name for Cyrus, who ruled over the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. But the more common thoughts is this, that Darius was actually Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, who served under his father as a ruler of Babylon and later would inherit the throne of the entire empire. Or it could be there's some evidence uh, through you know, some findings uh, that Darius was a 
ancient official known as Guburu, according to ancient documents, whom Cyrus appointed over Babylon immediately after his capture. And those documents show that this man, Guburu, had the power to make appointments, to assemble an army, to tax the people. But I think what we see at the end of the chapter, that Daniel makes it clear that Darius and, and Cyrus were two separate individuals. We are told in verse 1 of the chapter that Darius set over the kingdom 120 satraps. They're kind of like mayors. They're kind of like managers over a city, over a certain area. And we continue reading in verse 2, And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, so that the satraps might give it account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. And then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So over the 120 satraps or, or managers or mayors of the empire, and the Medo-Persian empire was huge. There are three governors of whom Daniel was really the number two man. He was the right-hand official of Darius, and he actually was above the other two governors. This is no longer the Babylonian Empire. There is a change of empires ruling. It has now gone from the head of gold, remember Daniel chapter 2, which represented Babylon, to the chess and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel has seen that prophecy come to pass. Now, there is a change also with government and how it is set up. And this Daniel, the captive of Judah, has been in captivity for 70 years and has been loyal to God. He continues to be blessed by God. He had an elevated position in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had absolute rule. Remember that as we saw in the previous chapter that he told Belshazzar that your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, he had absolute rule. He, he put to death whoever he wanted to put to death. He saved whoever he wanted to save. When he made a law, as soon as those words lift, left his mouth, it became law. And if he changed his mind a few minutes later, like we saw in Daniel chapter 3, then that became law as well. Now with the Medes and the Persians uh, and Darius, it's a constitutional monarchy as we're going to see that the law cannot be changed. And I think that as we consider this, I really think that it's no doubt that Darius and Cyrus were familiar with Daniel, probably had done trade with Babylon. They were familiar with Daniel and his reputation that was in Babylon. And he was known for his wisdom. He was known for his loyalty and his honesty of being one that, that we read had an excellent spirit in him. And so when Cyrus took the city, he killed Belshazzar. He did not kill Daniel. And that was not the norm. Remember that Daniel, he was made the third ruler in the, in the kingdom that night. Uh, gave him a gold chain and, and uh, uh, purple robe and all of this. Even though Daniel told Belshazzar, keep your gifts. I don't want them because you're going down this very night. But it would be customary that Cyrus would kill any of the leaders, any of the rulers that were there. But they did not do that with Daniel. But as we read here, Darius, as he's ruling, he promotes Daniel. 
And he has preeminence over all the other governmental leaders. And we are told that Darius was considering Daniel just to rule over all of it. And Darius trusted Daniel. The three governors appointed to make sure that the other 120 satraps weren't ripping him off or taking bribes or keeping the tax money or forming some kind of conspiracy to overthrow him. And the the three were to oversee them, the 120, and Daniel was trusted to where he would oversee really the whole realm, including the other two governors. We read that, there is so much trust and confidence in Daniel by the king. And that word, verse 3, distinguish, pay attention to it. it he distinguished himself above the other two governors means that, to shine forth, to outshine. In other words, his work was excellent, outshining the others in the government because of the excellent spirit that was in him. Excellent literally means to excel. We are told as Christians in the book of Colossians that we're to do all things as unto the Lord. And when it comes to our work, that we're not to do it with eye service or lip service, but we're to do it in a way that honors the Lord, to do it unto him. And that pleases the Lord. And we who come and say, Lord, just give me that excellent spirit, that it may be recognized by others. It is the Holy Spirit in us working through us that I would just do all things as unto you in a way that is pleasing to you, Lord. And to live my life, to be the man, the woman that you've called me to be, the husband, the wife, the mom, the dad, the grandma, the grandpa, the uncle, whatever state that you're in, to be the worker, the business owner, that it would show in my life that excellent spirit. Here is Daniel in his 80s, probably close to 90 years old, and that excellent spirit of God was evident in him from the time that he was taken captive, 70 years previous to this, he had purpose in his heart. Remember chapter 1? I'm not going to defile myself with the things of Babylon. And he had been ripped away from his family, made a eunuch in Babylon. And in the midst of all that, as a teenager, he decided that he would not pollute himself with the things of Babylon. And he's working for a ruler, for a man who would not hesitate to chop you up in pieces if you made him mad. And he took a stand when he was young, when he was a young teenager. They can take me away from my family. They can take me away from my parents. They can take my inheritance away. They can take me away from where I was raised. But the one thing that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar could not take away was his relationship and devotion to God. And I pray that that is an encouragement to you and particularly to you who are young because Babylon is trying to take you away captive, whoever you are, and especially if you're young. And that you would say, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to purpose in my heart 
to stand firm for the Lord and be committed to the Lord. And because Daniel did that, he was empowered by the Lord as the Spirit of God was evident in him. In chapter 2, hey, I found uh, one of the captives uh, of Judah that he, I'm going to bring him to you, Nebuchadnezzar, that he will tell you the dream and the interpretation of the dream. He has the Spirit of God in him. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar given his testimony. They said that Daniel in him is the Spirit of God. As we saw in chapter 5, that, that Belshazzar is the wise men aren't going to be able to interpret the handwriting on the wall. But there is a captive of Judah. He served your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. Bring him and he will give the interpretation because he has the Spirit of God that is in him. And now here in chapter 6, it is recognized that he has an excellent spirit in him. So you who are young, you make a stand for the Lord. And on the other side of the spectrum, you who are older like me, you can have and still have that excellent spirit in you. Because you have wisdom. And you have experience. And as we grow older, we should become more compassionate and sympathetic and to be able to minister to others in a wonderful way. To be an encouragement to those who are young. Daniel here in his last year is an excellent spirit seen by men, honored by God concerning his attitude and his integrity and his character that goes beyond what these other men, his peers that are around him. Daniel, the person that has been before us in the last several weeks, he can be trusted. Just like Joseph in Potiphar's house, that young man that Potiphar's, Potiphar's said, you are the head steward of my house. I entrust you because with all these things, because I know you're not going to steal from me. You're not going to cheat me. You're not going to lie to me. And here, Darius, he knows that Daniel's going to be honest, that he's going to work hard, that he's not going to steal or deceive him. This is the kind of man that any king or any employer would love to have to entrust things to. And that is a witness that we can give to the world. And we at the workplace should be the hardest most honest workers that are there, that are working wherever you're doing, in the company that you're running. We are not to, as Christians, to be lazy. We're not to be dishonest. We are not to have the reputation, you can't trust them, they're going to cheat you, or, you know, complaining all the time and gossiping about the boss and just joining in with all the crude jokes with everybody else. We're not to be that way. And whatever age you are, young or old and in between, that as we consider this Daniel and you say that, Lord, I know that you're speaking to me about these things and it is a new day and I consecrate to you a fresh going forward for you to accomplish what you desire in me and through me in the day that I have left in the year that I have left in the decade or decades that I have left Lord here is my life today going forward dedicated to you 
If you are young, just a teenager in this sanctuary, you commit yourself to him. Don't commit yourself to the world. The world's going to wreck you. The world's going to cheat you. We're seeing more people leave the faith than ever before. And it breaks my heart and it breaks your heart. We see that the suicide rate of our young people is increasing at an alarming rate. Drug overdose up in the last year over 110% of our young people. They're feeling more hopeless, more depressed, more confused than ever before. You come to the Lord who gives you life and abundant life to walk with him and to know him and to serve him and to enjoy him. Don't buy into what people will tell you or what the enemy will whisper into your ear. That is too hard. No. The culture won't let you. You need to conform to all that is going on. You'll miss out. You know, you won't have any friends. You know, that Bible stuff, that's your parents' religion. Don't buy into that. And you set your course to walk with the Lord, and you will see that he will do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that works in us, that excellent spirit in us, the Holy Spirit of God working through us. And I think that it's worth taking the time to consider this. We read this chapter, and we want to get Daniel in the lion's den. We'll do that next week, okay? But we see how Daniel had a life committed to God, and it speaks to me. And I hope it speaks to you. A man with an excellent spirit. So we see the favor of Daniel. Now we're going to see his peers that want to frame Daniel. Let's read in verse 4. So the governor and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. And then these men said, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So his peers went to frame him. In verse 5, they couldn't find any fault, no charge, no blame, no error, because he is so faithful. And I believe it's pretty obvious as we read this that these guys are jealous and full of envy towards Daniel. So they want to find some fault with him so they can discredit him. Hey, if we can see that he's done something wrong, we can find any fault, any mistakes, then we can go to Darius and we can start to tear Daniel down. It, it was like, reminds me of Jesus in his last week. Remember in the Synoptic Gospels, the religious leaders came and they kept asking Jesus questions, trying to back him into a corner, trying to find some reason to accuse him, but they could not do that. There was no fault found in him because he's the perfect Lamb of God. Here, Daniel, as we see, being trusted, they know that they can't find any fault with him. And you can always tell when someone is jealous or envious of another because first they will watch that individual to find fault and to find blame. They will watch them very carefully to find fault, to bring accusation. They will first watch and then begin to put them down, to begin to criticize, to begin to judge them, and even to throw mud. And remember this, that if you throw mud you're going to get your hands dirty. 
And I hope all of us remember this as well. The Bible declares it very clearly that you will never be elevated in the Lord's eyes if you try to lift yourself up and elevate yourself, make yourself look good by putting someone else down. It won't work, and God will never honor that. And what this chapter will show us is that jealousy, you know how the story ends, and envy will cause you to get bit. It will come back and it will bite you. And it's going to happen to these guys that are trying to come against Daniel. It's going to happen to these guys literally. They're going to get chomped on. So they watched him and they find no fault in him. So we see that Daniel being faithful to his duties to the kings. And then another point that we will see, and it's a huge lesson in this chapter here. These guys are going to try to attack, ruin, challenge Daniel's reputation. And people will do that to you and I as Christians. Because you are a Christian. You made a decision. You're going to walk with the Lord. You're going to make a stand for the Lord. You're going to work with integrity and honesty. And, and people become jealous of you. And they try to ruin your reputation by coming against you. Gossiping about you. Maybe even bringing false accusation against you. But I want you to remember this, please. People may try to ruin your reputation. But only you can ruin your character. People may try to ruin your reputation. But only you can ruin your character. And in his life, Daniel had those who tried to ruin, to trash his reputation. Same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. But they continue to show such godly character. Don't let others determine how you're going to react. And we can get so upset, and I get upset too. This is for me. The people that get under my skin, and they're nasty towards me, or come against me in some way, and... Whatever the case may be, and I'm going to let the Lord be my defense. Listen, I'm not talking about you being a doormat to let somebody abuse you or uh, continue to be in arm's way or deceive you, rip you off, any of those things. I'm talking about when you find yourself, when somebody's coming against you, that you continue in godly character. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, save the Lord. You know, David prayed those practitory prayers. You know, Lord, drop a bus on their head, right? <laughs> he, he, he was honest with the Lord, but then he turned to the Lord and he said, that, Lord, you're my defense, you're my protector. And we are ones, there's a time where we defend ourselves. There's a time where, where we get out of the way, but we let the Lord determine how we react. That's why the Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And in that, what he's saying is, don't you mess with it because you can't handle it. Let the Lord determine how you're going to react in situations. When people start throwing mud on you. So they try to trap him and and we have to do it according to the law of his God. We know that he won't compromise the law of his God. In verse 6 we read, So the governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. And all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, satraps, the counselors, advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statue. 
and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. These guys are going to set this trap, and they do it by using flattery to the king. We think that you're so wonderful. We think you're so great. You're so powerful that you should sign this decree that no one prays to anyone else or any other god but you, only you, king, for 30 days. So they're playing into his pride. You know, for you and for me, be careful when somebody plays into your pride, when they begin to butter you up. We're to encourage each other. We're to build each other up. We're to be thankful for each other. We can compliment one another. But you know how that is. When somebody plays into your pride, you begin to butter you up, and you're thinking, okay, what is it that you want? And in verse 6 there, that word throng, it means to really push this on Darius and to do it right away. And so he does, and it was a foolish thing for him to do. Sometimes people will push you into something. They want you to do something right away. When we need to first stop and pray and seek God, and it avoids a lot of foolish decisions and actions. And notice that he signed a decree. With Nebuchadnezzar, again, an absolute monarchy, if he wanted to change it, he could change it. Not here with Darius, the constitutional monarchy. Once he signed it and sealed it, it would be law, and he could not change it. And that's why they were really pushing him to do this. And I can picture these guys just watching, and he signs it, and in signet ring, he seals it, and they're rubbing their hands, and they're saying, all right, we got him. We got Daniel. Why? Because they knew that Daniel was a man of prayer. They could predict his behavior. And that was, he's not going to pray to Darius. He's going to pray to his God. He's going to pray to his God. So can I ask us all a question this morning? Can people predict your behavior? What are you going to do when you find yourself in a difficult situation? What are you going to do you know, when the guys want you to, hey, let's go out and have some drinks and let's yuck it up. and I mean, Let's go out and party a little bit. What are you going to do when the world begins to pull at you and Babylon begins to tempt you? Can people predict your behavior? Do they know that you're going to say, I'm going to go to the men's study on this Tuesday night? I want to be with some men that will encourage me. Why don't you come along with me? You know, that's one of the things I tell guys. You know, when they, they invite you to the bars, invite them to church. And they'll stop inviting you to the bars. <laughs> I'm going to get my family up on Sunday morning. We're going to go to church, and we're going to be with God's people. Not an arrogant or haughty kind of thing. I'm going to go home and I'm going to be praying with my wife and ministering to my kids because that's a priority with me. Can they predict your behavior? Do they know that you're going to turn to the Lord? And now verse 10 tells us when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his window towards Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and he prayed and gave thanks. He gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. 
And then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. So Daniel goes up, he opens his window. He prayed not to Jerusalem, but towards Jerusalem. These guys are underneath there, knew that he'd be doing it, making a record of that. Daniel knew the decree had been signed by Darius, and he goes and he, he prays as usual towards Jerusalem. And the reason that he did that is because when Solomon dedicated the temple, part of that dedication was, Lord, if we rebel and find ourselves out of this land, if they turn towards this place and pray unto thee, hear them. And remember that God responded to that prayer by saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land, I will heal their nation. That's a prayer for our nation, isn't it? But I want to end with this. That Daniel went to his upper room. He knelt down on those knees that were over 80 years old. And he had an open window to heaven. And he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom. He prayed towards Jerusalem. In other words, he prayed towards home. Parents, grandparents, I want to remind you what we have seen in this book. Before Daniel was taken captive, he was in his home in Jerusalem. And he, no doubt, had a family. He had parents that talked to him about God, about the things of God, to trust in God, to walk with God. Daniel faced Jerusalem. He faced towards home. And he would remember those who had such godly influence in his life that he hadn't seen in 70 years, probably long gone. Parents and others that talked to him about God before he was taken captive to Babylon. Parents, grandparents, please. I know it's a battle. But it is never a waste of time to pray for your kids, to pray with your kids, to speak truth and scripture into their lives, to have your home be a sanctuary where the things of God are talked about, where the praises of God are expressed, to make your home a sanctuary, to talk to your kids how much the Lord means to you. It is never a waste of time to bring them here so they can learn about the Lord as well. It is not a waste of time to bring them to VBS where they're going to be taught that God made them and is with them and created them and loves them. It's not a waste of time to invest in your kids to the things of God because I'll tell you this, you know it to be true. Babylon's coming after them to take them away. And you might be here thinking, I did that, or my kids, I, I got a prodigal. They're out on their own. 
I know that there are several people that have that in families and it breaks our heart. But you keep praying for them. You keep praying that, Lord, bring them home. And remember in that that parable, the prodigal, that the father went to the end of the road and he saw his son coming. And I've said this before, but I want to remind you again. How did he know to go to the end of the road? How did he know to go to look? I believe that he did because he did it every day. He prayed, bring my son home. And you pray, bring him home, Lord. And you give that message to them. The Lord wants you to come home, to come home. Keep ministering and keep fighting the good fight. It's getting darker. It's getting darker. And our weapons are not carnal, but what's spiritual. Through the word of God and prayer, love them, speak to them. Make it a priority in your home to do that. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these lessons here that are given to us and reminders of your goodness and provision and love for us. As we take of communion, coming to the communion table, So we hold these elements in our hands. Remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross and allowing his body to be broken and bloodshed. We want to just continue in worship and awe and wonder this new covenant that we belong to. The communion table being for the believer. And maybe you're here or maybe you're watching or... And you're not one that has come to faith. You haven't come and given your life to Jesus. He is your salvation. And the invitation is for you to come. The world's going to lie to you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it would be a few hours after he said that, he took that cross to that place of execution because of his love for you. And he hung on that cross to make atonement for your sins, and he was put into a grave, and he rose again. He validated that he's the Son of God. He validated his work on the cross. He conquered sin and death. So salvation is found through him alone. And he says, come and believe in me. Turn to me and call out to me. And you can do that right now. They can pray sincerely in your heart. That Jesus, I come and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior, believing that you died for my sins. You rose again. And I thank you for dying for me and giving me this blessed hope, this eternal hope, forgiveness of sin, that I can have the spirit of adoption, that I can say, Abba, Father, I thank you for dying for me. And now I surrender my life to you. And I do want to walk with you and know you. I thank you for this new beginning to move forward with you from this day forth, in Jesus' name. And for us now, as we come to the communion table as believers, 
to hold the elements in our hands, just marveling at the incredible provision for us that Jesus did on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So the ushers are going to hand out the communion elements, and they're going to come forth. So remember, we're going to partake of communion together, but as you get ready, there's two tabs, uh, one for the bread and then one for the cup as they come forth. Thank you.